I'm your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons, and you found another interesting one this week. Regular guest Jason Dubray and I are going to discuss Westerns. This is the second time I've tackled the subject, and I know it's a little bit off-board as far as my typical horror, sci-fi, fantasy thing, but I, I think there's lots of interesting things to be discussed here. I think it's an interesting bunch of movies and a real tough rank. As usual, you should go into Rank and Review knowing that there's going to be spoilers for the six movies being reviewed, and that there's going to be coarse language, most especially from me. Since you like listening to podcasts, you should check out the Shelf Shedding Movie Show, which is hosted by Mr. Dubray. You can also check out the Terror Table Podcast, a lifetime of Hallmark, Cobwebs, a gothic cinema podcast, and welcome to Riverdale. Those are some good friends of the show that you can plug into your ears if you need more podcast. Thank you so much for listening to Rankin Review. Send your feedback to rankinreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. Check out the website at rankinreview.ca. Thank you so much for listening. Jason Dubray is back on Rankin Review. Thank you so much for yet again returning to the show. And you specifically requested that you wanted to do Westerns. Now, was, are you in love with that particular genre? Or was it because uh, that was the one episode where you and I lined up, where you agreed with my choices in the rank? It was... And I've agreed with you in the past, but all six movies... That's the episode where I was like, if I had been the guest and on the rank for that one, the show with Sky, I would have been a rank and review champion because uh, that was a six for six for me. Right. I I have a very, very strong feeling we are not going to go six for six on, on these, just knowing your taste as right. I do now and you know my taste, but I don't know, we might surprise ourselves here. Um, it, was, it was that and then I... I mentioned that, and then you said there you had another Western show, so I thought, well, let's do something different. Yeah, but are you a fan of that aesthetic? Like, uh, yeah, I am now. I wasn't growing up. 
I, I think I had an idea that the Western was kind of like the old California Indians TV show uh, type of thing. And I, I didn't take it seriously. I didn't think that the actors in it were that particularly good, that the stories were interesting until my uncle uh, took me to see Unforgiven in the theater. Right. And the, I remember, like, now to watch it, it's not as shocking, but I remember the, um, the complexity of the storytelling. I thought, well, I've misjudged this genre. It's not the first time I've misjudged a genre, by the way. Um, and I started to watch more Westerns after that. It still was a little bit of a slow crawl to enjoying them. I really like them now, the age that I am now. But uh, I, I've always liked the darker ones, the yeah. ones that are more more R-rated. The violence is more in your face. A less glamorous version of the Old West. Um, that's the type of Western I, I enjoy. In more a than weird some way, uh, Westerns, I don't know if that's what they are or that's what they've become are starting to have more in common with, like, your post-apocalyptic sci-fi, uh, in that yeah. it's presenting a world that no longer exists, but uh, these people are living hard lives throughout it. Honestly, for the most part, I associate most of these movies with, like, my dad. Even even in A Valley of Violence, which uh, he never got to see, unfortunately, if he saw it, he would have totally loved that movie, right? Uh, this is the kind of thing that my old man would be watching on a Saturday afternoon that I would have to impatiently sit through while I was missing my cartoons on the other channel. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that bore some, some built-in resentment to it. But as far as the things that Dad would watch, a, a vintage Clint Eastwood Western was fairly watchable by my standards. You knew someone was yeah. going to get shot, <laughs> right? Uh, so I do find them uh, entertaining, but I I wonder now with the whole romanticism. Well, it's either one side or the other. Either the super dark version of the West, the Bone Tomahawk West, or the super romanticized yeah. sort of Gunsmoke West. Uh, I don't think either of them were ever ever real. <laughs> like I wonder if if we've ever truly seen an authentic period Western or what that would actually feel like. Uh, to me, these are exercises largely in style um, and in, in sort of classic, usually retribution storytelling. Usually we have somebody who is wronged who is going to make that wrong right. Or your classic man with no name who shows up in a town, changes it for the better, and then leaves. Their tales as old as time and really narratively very few surprises to be found in most of these movies. I won't say all of them, but in most of these movies, within the first 10 minutes, you get a good idea of what you're going to get, and you're not wrong about that. Yeah. It's a genre that really gives service <laughs> to people who appreciate it. Almost, almost comparable to the slasher genre, in a way. Like, if you want something where you know what you're going to get, Western's a pretty safe bet. I mean, not to say that there aren't com comedic westerns or more dr dram dramatic sort of leaning westerns. These are, for the most part, I think, action pictures that we're talking about here. Um, so we've got a range between the 60s and the, I think it was 2016 for Valley of Violence. Did you notice anything other than, obviously, the technical filmmaking... But as far as the more modern age Western towards the more traditional Westerns of the 60s and 70s, did you notice a change in that was good or bad or indifferent? Um, I mean, 
I, I feel like in, in like in the, they're of their era and there's a certain style connected to each time westerns. I think the most modern ones that we look at look nice or are a little bit cleaner looking in some ways as far as the filmmaking and the quality of film. I don't know if they're necessarily as compelling as the you know uh, B movie westerns and I, I guess the closest that you could call a, as a, a B movie perhaps here is uh, A Fistful of Dollars right. um, or the Spaghetti Western which was its own thing and it was kind of a bit of a miracle that it became such a, a prominent uh, subgenre of westerns for that long um, if you just look at it from you know purely like visual and aesthetic point of view, um, they're maybe not as sharp, but there's some sort of a strange finger on. And one of my frustrations is from viewing to viewing, I either love the movie or I hate it. Oh wow! Versus. I use the word hate again. I just stop using the word hate. Dislike, <laughs> greatly dislike. I'm, I'm a bit dramatic with the hate word, but not hate. Uh, I'm just like, it, I feel like this is awful. Why did I ever like this? And then I re- return for maybe a third or fourth time. I'm like, yeah, I was right the first time. I really enjoyed that. So well, that's a mystery there. I don't think the modern Westerns have that kind of experience. Either um, it's a sharply made Western, which is very compelling, and it's one that I want to revisit. Uh, or it's not, and there's no real reason for me, unless I'm reviewing it for your podcast or for my podcast, to uh, to, to look at them again. So I don't know if they're... I feel like there's potential for modern Westerns to be amazing now, but I don't... I can't name a whole lot of them that are. Yeah. Um, but Bone Tomahawk was definitely one that was... It was very unique in a way. Like, yeah. the meaning of... I think that's what makes it stand out is because of how uh, like different it, it, it is. But for the most yeah. part, I don't see that in westerns, and and even some. Of, I'm trying to think of more high profile quote modern westerns like Open Range or Silverado. Yeah. They seem slavish almost to the template of the, of the the western. They don't seem at all interested in moving anything forward. They just want to be as good a western as they can be. Uh, yeah. So I find that interesting about it. Um, I like that they pay homage to the westerns of yesteryear. They're not necessarily like the five that are the best westerns of all time. I also wanted to shout out a recommendation that you gave me um, a while ago now, but The Burrowers, oh, yeah. which is a, horror, a brutal horror western. I love that one. That, yeah. That's, yeah, that's terrific. So, so I think the trick to modern westerns is they almost have to be amalgamated with some other genre that people will be willing to part with their money or or spend their time with. I don't know if there are many Westerns on their own that um, do as well as when, you know, coming from the tradition of the television Western and into, like, the John Wayne and Clint Eastwood age of uh, the 60s and 70s. Yeah, and this is something that I can't overstate to the, like, people who are coming into the Westerns as sort of newbies. The Western genre in the 50s and 60s and even creeping into the early 70s were as big as like the superhero genre is today. Westerns were for a time huge and that time has passed. 
um, like every now and then we'll see a little, uh, you know, a year where we have two or three Westerns in one year and people say, is the Western coming back? And sometimes I want to believe it, but I kind of don't. I, I think that there'll always be one or two Westerns that'll be coming around the corner, but I, I don't see a return to that particular fascination with that period. Um, the romanticism of that age is something that I like to talk about. It's the same thing like with uh, gangster movies, how um, we love us gangster movies, but even the best of them, like The Godfather, is absolutely like a romanticized version of it. In these movies, we're asked to like, you know, Billy the Kid and Wild Bill Hickok. And in the real world, I think, if we were to interact with those guys... I don't know that we would like them very much. I don't know that yeah. they are, you know, romantic figures as such. They are, they're, they're outlaws and murderers. But for some reason, we like outlaws and murderers, most especially in the area of, of Western. And that's something that we're going to be seeing throughout these movies that I wanted to uh, tap into because I was just sort of trying to see, like, what, what the real thread between all of these movies are. I think there's several, but... Yeah. That that gray morality is definitely there. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think Unforgiven, why Unforgiven is as great as it is, and I I don't think I completely got it when I was young and, and saw it, but I revisit that one a lot. I've used it in my teaching to teach satire, believe it or not, and some other um, some techniques. I think there's a lot of stuff there, but one of them is debunking the myth of the Western hero. And Eastwood himself doing that was was brilliant in a way that all of these supposed heroes that are written about are were drunks and murderers, and the reasons for attacking people were not noble. They were because somebody like slept with some other girl or some problem, and they get into a gun battle over that card game. Um, yeah. Well, what, what I'm saying is that. Most of the Western heroes we talk about were really like drunk. They were drunks, yeah. And that also. Okay, you were cutting out there a little bit, but what you're saying is basically a lot of the historians have done a lot of the work as far as romanticizing these drunken bullies yeah. into heroic Western figures. And I, I absolutely agree with that. Uh, it's just interesting. And obviously these are all fiction films, but they're embracing it. Even though they're about, quote, true figures, none of these movies are pretending to be real world. In fact, uh, when Young Guns 2, you know, does that... Well, we'll get to it when we talk about Young Guns 2. Th that movie almost tries to tell, you know, revisionist history, <laughs> right? But for the most part, I think that the job of these movies is to entertain. That's all they want to do, and that's what they're... That's the goal. Is there anything else yeah. you wanted to say about Westerns or this particular group of six before we list them off and start? It was a tough rank. Uh, there are four that I really, really like, and they were all very close. So I think one to four is going to be a very thin line. And then there were two that I don't particularly care for as much. It's not that I don't like them. There's some merits in, in, in them. There isn't anything that I think is awful here, but it's just didn't appeal subjectively to my taste in Westerns as much as uh, the other four. Okay. Well, that's interesting because I have a 4-2 split as well, but let's. I wonder if they're going to be in the same place. Um, the six Westerns that Jason Debray, host of the Shelf Shedding Movie Show, uh, are going to be ranking with me. We're going to talk about A Fistful of Dollars. We're going to talk about Young Guns 2. We're going to talk about The Wild Bunch. We're going to talk about Wild Bill. 
We're going to talk about In a Valley of Violence, and we're going to finish with another Clint Eastwood Western, The Outlaw Josie Wales. Thanks for doing this, brother. This short cigar belongs to the man with no name. This long gun belongs to the man with no name. This poncho belongs to the man with no name. Don't you want to see me? What's wrong, Ramon? You losing your touch? Shoot to kill, you better hit the heart. Aim for the heart or you'll never stop me. man with no name. Danger fits him like a tight black glove. He is, perhaps, the most dangerous man who ever lived. Fistful of Dollars, Sergio Leone, Clint Eastwood, Spaghetti Western. The, the words that come to mind right away is, I fucking conic. Okay? Like, uh... Just the image of the poncho, the cigarette, the cowboy hat, the grizzled face, that gnarled sort of hard line, you know, of a mouth that that Clint comes in. The man with no name shows up in this town. And believe it or not, Jason, there are two warring factions, one in charge of guns, one in charge of alcohol. And he's going to play both sides against each other. And he's going to make friends with people. And the people that are his friends are going to get caught up in the violence as well. And it's all going to work out exactly, exactly how you would expect it. Now, that's easy to say now, today, 2021. But when this movie came out, I think it was a real exercise in style in the Western form. People had been watching Westerns every day on TV. It was like it was there was nothing particularly special about another Western. What they brought to the table was cool, was style, was just sheer fucking badassery. And even when I was a kid and actively didn't want to like like these westerns because I was being deprived of my cartoons I had to respond positively to this iconography like I get why Stephen King plucked this character into a, a major narrative of his fiction in the gunslinger you know, sort of dark tower universe and it, I get that people would say looking at it objectively well yeah it's every story ever ever told and it's badly dubbed and you're right and I absolutely love it in fact, controversially, this is my favorite of the trilogy. Now, it could be because it's the first one I saw. Sometimes it just that first impression is the one that makes it. But they keep on trying to elevate things moving forward here. And uh, to me, they really nailed it as far as the aesthetics first time out. In a way, a fistful of dollars is every sort of shoot 'em up Western that you've ever seen. But it's also the shoot 'em up Western in a lot of ways. So yeah. you're not going to hear me saying too many shitty things about a fistful of dollars. This is where I start. Yeah, I um, and I had not not it was a, a few months ago, but I watched the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly for a, a future show that Lee Beckman will be on for my podcast. Uh, I, I'm not sure when that will be yet, but. Um, and I was reminded how much I love the good, the bad, and the ugly. 
But what I like, I, I haven't returned the good, the bad, and the ugly, which is obviously considered the, the, the best of the three. Universally, except for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, you may, I may be closer to agreement, actually, because I return to a fistful of dollars a lot more than the good, the bad, and the ugly. Like, the good, the bad, and the ugly feels like a sit. It yeah. feels like um, I'm going to have to rev myself up to to watch it. And when I'm in there, then I'm like, oh, yeah, why was that? Why did I, I wait to do this? But a fistful of dollars is very compact. Like, it's, it's a, a smaller story set in the one town, um, and we just get to see like a, an intelligent Western hero who doesn't say a lot. Um, obviously, a man with no name, but also Eastwood. He asked for most of the dialogue to be cut. He said the, the script was way too verbose when he um, joined onto the project. And it's just him observing what's going on, who has the power, who doesn't have the power, and working it to his advantage. But his motivation is not that pure. He simply wants to get money and then leave the town. Some but of he his wants Western to make what he calls an honest dollar. <laughs> he doesn't want to steal no. the money. He wants to earn it, but his way of earning it might be less than conventional. <laughs> yeah. And but I, but I like that as a selfish reason. Yeah. It's a little bit more honest than he's just some guy who comes into town and sees a wrong and wants to become the hero and then leave town where it's like what you were describing before the the traditional formula for westerns and eastwood was in a lot of westerns like that but this one he's a smart guy and he is smarter than the the boss for these two dangerous gangs but he does it in a way that they think he's not that smart that he's a bit of an idiot or he's you know um or he's just kind of a useful henchman uh, and that's it. And um, I, I really like how it unfolds. This is one where I watched it. I was, and I again, I think the first scene is a bit of a problem because you have to acclimatize yourself to um, the the dubbing. Yeah. And that child with the voice that no child would have um, early on, and it just things aren't matching, and it's just like feeling okay. This feels awful. And so I've had sometimes where I watch this and I'm just like, I don't know why I like this movie because this, on the surface, this is not, I get it's the style of the spaghetti western, but it, it's kind of annoying in some scenes and you have people that are overacting and nobody understood each other on set. So it, it kind of makes sense. Well, I'm, I'm with um, you. But it, but it does sort of work in the end. And this time, it was probably my favorite viewing of, of this movie I, I i really had a good time with it um throughout so yeah well i mean i agree with you about the dubbing like one of the corners of uh horror that i i have trouble with is italian giallo horror cinema and uh yeah. i really do wish like they had this idea of shooting with a lot of english actors and letting the other actors speak in their own language and just redubbing it and that way they can distribute the film throughout the world dubbing it in whatever they want but Please, please, please give me the subtitles. Every single time I will take the subtitles. And it's a hard barrel to get over. Sometimes I can, but it's a rare movie that does it. This movie does. 
when I first saw this, this is how young I was. I didn't understand the idea of like dubbing. Like I didn't get why the lips didn't match their mouths. It was just this weird layer of separation that everybody else had that effect to them, except for Clint Eastwood. <laughs> he was like the only character in this world that made sense <laughs> somehow. But you're right. It's distracting, but you do get used to it. Uh, I would like, you're right to, to flag that because right away it's there and you have to kind of like, oh, okay, this is what we're doing. But once you once you settle into the waters, it it's easy going. I do think this is a pretty, pretty great entry point for the Western in a lot of ways if you can get past the dubbing because it is absolutely classic in its form. I also, when you're talking about him being such a badass, he's a badass, he's cool, and he also has this gallows humor about him. He's in the town, what, half an hour? And he makes his first play, and he walks past the, the mortician or the guy who makes all the coffins and says, get three coffins ready. And then he shoots four guys, and on the way back he says, sorry, I meant four or whatever, I was wrong. And... Uh, Again, it seems like it's sort of cheesy thing in a way to repeat it now, but at the time, that was like hardcore, dark, and yeah. heavy, right? And uh, this is our protagonist, and he just killed four guys he didn't even really know. He just knew yeah. that they were, you know, gangstery. <laughs> yeah. And he has made an point. impression. Yeah. And Eastwood, um, and this is very, very early in his career, but. He sells those lines so well. Like, not just anybody could have done this. And they were looking at a lot of different figures. Like, he, Eastwood was probably the 10th person they approached for this project. Yeah. He was a, TV a, a supporting TV player on, on Rawhide, right? Yeah. It was even offered to somebody else in Rawhide before him. Uh, and then his co-star recommended Eastwood. And it's probably the lowest paycheck he ever received in his life, uh, like, but it defined him. It defined his career. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, um, but it, it very much announced him as a filmmaker. Like one of my strange theories about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, have you seen it? I have. Yeah. Is that in some way that the Leonardo DiCaprio character is some version of Clint Eastwood? It's sort of a struggling television actor who goes off to Italy and makes these movies and then comes back and is a bigger star. Right. Um, yeah, I know evidence that he like lived anywhere near uh, Sharon Tate or right. uh, but you know, uh, I, I just think because Tarantino is so influenced by this trilogy and, and this movie is one of his favorites, yeah. uh, I, I, I feel like that that was at sort of the back of his mind uh, with this. So. I definitely feel that sort of badass Tarantino attitude. I totally would believe that. And you know he loves the Westerns. But yes. it's also interesting to point out, like, you're right, Clint Eastwood was not Clint Eastwood when this movie made sort of little feedback there. In a way, he was slumming it. And, uh, yeah, he, he ended up doing this super cheap Italian spaghetti Western, and it completely, completely changed his world. And, well, cinema, really, because... There's so many emulators. Like, it made Westerns dark and edgy for a good while. Like, no no fistful of dollars, really. No wild bunch. I think it was a yes. stepping stone to get us towards Peckinpah's epic there as well. Mm -hmm. This is a good thing. So, yeah, it's a weird movie to talk about because, like I said, there's 
it's it's such a bone simple narrative. Like you've seen this movie before, whether or not you've seen it before, it is the kind of epic template shoot 'em up western. But I don't know. I think because between the dubbing, between the you know the the, the sort of strange distance that you have from it. It has this other quality. It stands out. Even its flaws, in a weird way, helped this movie when it first came out. Maybe it's aging it now, but when it first came out, all of its flaws just made it stand out more and made it, you know, beg for attention. And the fact that it's still an iconic movie this many years later, when, you know, the bulk of the kids out there don't give a shit about westerns, they all know at least who... Clint Eastwood is and when they yes. have that picture in their head of the Clint Eastwood Western this is the picture that they have it, in their head this guy the man with no name who in this script is referred to as Joe at one point that's just true. Kind of, yeah um, but it's the, the journey you may know where it's going but the journey is so enjoyable um, just the obstacles he encounters how he finds ways to screw over both of these gangs um, it is brilliant. Like, he does a noble thing in the middle there where he tries to figure out a, a way that this this young family can escape from this uh, servitude, this uh, kind of this imprisonment with, with the gangs. And uh, and and just, just how he goes about that. And like that sequence, you know, and towards the end, and you're like, why, why do we have this, this huge sequence where you know, we just see Eastwood just shooting bullets randomly uh, into into middle, and then we get the payoff, which is a very famous scene from from this movie. Um, as good as "Go Ahead, Make My Day" or like any of those moments, like that the moment of that the climax of the film, where this guy almost becomes like he's immortal or uh, some like he's from. He's from a, something supernatural, and we see the reason for that. That reveal is like, it's so obvious, but the first time, and I saw it when I was younger, I was like, that I did not know that that was coming, and that is brilliant. Yeah. Like, and it was set up from beginning to end. Um, well, and so the think, idea during a gun, well, a gunfight or anybody who's military trained, even if you're not a sharpshooter, quote unquote, is you go for center mass. I guess the whole idea of hiding the metal under his shirt depended on the fact that nobody made a headshot. <laughs> but that's yeah. badass. That's him laying all his cards on the table. <laughs> you know what it made me think of, Jason, strangely? <laughs> Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. I love that freaking movie. I just, I do. <laughs> it's sort of a western too, isn't it? It is. Um, is there anything else you want to say about A Fistful of Dollars? I mean, if you haven't seen A Fistful of Dollars, I don't know what to tell you. You should watch it. <laughs> right, check it out and don't let the style get in the way. And, and maybe you need to watch it once and absorb the style, but I, I guarantee you're going to think about it and you're going to return to it. It's not a long watch. It's um, it's just a terrific Western. Uh, um, one thing I would say, and this is close to a negative, I guess, other than the dubbing, uh, some of the sound cues, which are cool and badass, are reused an awful lot. <laughs> 
Like, oh, yeah. Uh, they will use the same sound cue and just, just ride it into the ground. So if that's something that's going to bother you, that might be there too. But again, this is a quibble. One, sorry, one more thing. Yep. Apologize. I, I, I can't go by without crediting the late uh, Ennio Morricone. Oh, of course. His music score for for the trilogy and most of Sergio Leone's films, but uh, this one isn't as famous as The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. But it is a it is a great Western movie score, one of the best. Uh, agreed. I never stole a horse from someone I didn't like. Nah, you just kill him. What they are reading about is a 21-year-old delinquent. What scum? Who is making us look like imbeciles? Politicians, bankers, cattle kings. Scum. I got 18 dimes in each barrel, boy. You're starting to believe what they're writing about you, aren't you? Bob! You wrote a 15-year-old boy straight into his grave. Goodbye, Bob. Best dollar eighty I ever spent. <laughs> and the rest of us, straight to hell. I don't take to tenderfoots in my gang. It ain't your gang, Dave. Let's hire a thief. Thousand dollars, Mr. Garrett to catch one and all the resources you need to carry out the extermination just playing the game doc f1 william h bonnie even their horses are crazy we'll give them a game lauren they're starting to surround us we gotta get out of here dave it's your gang what it ain't my gang it's your gang it's always been your gang emilio estevez Kiefer sutherland lou diamond phillips christian slater balthazar getty alan ruck James Coburn and William Peterson as Pat Garrett. You who? I'll make you famous. Young Guns too. So Young Guns too. One of the many things I love about doing this podcast is that, like, I revisit movies that were from my youth, and I discover new things about them. I mean. I was probably going to get around to watching Young Guns 2 again sooner or later. Maybe one of the boys would start getting interested in westerns or whatever. But it had been a while since I'd watched Young Guns 2. And, I mean, it's a diverting fun enough is what it is shoot 'em up action movie. But I kept on being surprised by faces in this movie. I had no memory of Bradley Whitford or Viggo Mortensen or Scott Wilson being in Young Guns 2. But all three of them are. <laughs> um... I think I will start with the, for me, what is the most problematic thing about the movie, not counting Emilio Estevez. It's the, uh, it's the, the framing mechanism of old Emilio meeting a lawyer on the side of the highway and telling <laughs> us this entire story as if Billy the Kid was not in fact murdered by Pat Garrett and that like he survived and that we should be okay and happy about this. This whole framing mechanism and revisionist look at Billy the Kid is not only just on its face a bad idea, it's not well executed. I mean, I think the old age makeup is fine considering the time it came out in, but I got real sick listening to Mio's narration of this is what an old person sounds like it just it it, it it every time he speaks even just in his narration or we cut back to him it completely takes you out of the movie or takes me out of the movie um and it, it it's it's a problem um and the other it thing is you as well i would agree yeah okay um the other thing that hurt me about it, because especially when I was younger, I had real affection for that first Young Guns. Uh -huh. um, 
they kind of brought the band back together and then killed them. <laughs> and I, I mean, if that's what you're going to do, that's what you're going to do. But for me, kill all of them. I felt burnt that, you know, our beloved Doc and um, Lou Diamond Phillips uh, character, whose name escapes me right now. Um, Chavez. Chavez. Uh, yeah. yeah, you know, they, they all, you know, meet their maker, but Billy gets to skip by and, you know, end up an old man asking for a pardon. And uh, again, getting this heroic display. Emilio, and I complimented him about this when I reviewed the first Young Guns movie, is good at playing crazy, joyful, bloodlust Billy the Kid. When he's laughing and letting out the one-liners while he's shooting people, as an actor, it, I... I'm, that's when I'm most believing Emilio in these movies. But that goes nowhere to making me like his character, right? Like, he is somebody who enjoys killing. He can shoot a guy, like, let out a zinger, and then laugh at how funny his own zinger was. <laughs> you just killed a dude. Even if that dude was bad, you're bad too, <laughs> you know? Um so I guess I have problems with this idea of trying to make Billy the Kid like a straight hero as opposed to an anti-hero. <laughs> but if someone was to ask me, like, is it an entertaining movie and, like, is it worth watching? I think I would say yes with the measured condition. Like, in a weird way, Young Guns 1 felt like an 80s Western and only, like, five years later, Young Guns 2 feels like a 90s Western. And... To see that aesthetic is kind of interesting by itself. And like I say, to see all of these faces, really, it's kind of an incredible cast. Maybe not at the time, but watching it today, it's like wall to wall. It's like a, some Altman film is being cast here or something like this. So I think it's got way more talent in it than in a way it deserves. And it's got enough energy that it keeps me entertained. So... I have a guilty pleasure relationship with both the Young Guns movies. This is definitely the lesser of the two, but I would give a conditional pass for Young Guns 2. Is that fair, or is my nostalgia making me drunk? Yeah, you probably have a, a more of a history with it and enjoyed it younger. I I haven't watched it a whole lot. I, I, I've watched Young Guns uh, ahead of this to remind myself, and then into Young Guns 2, and... I guess one of the things is I don't particularly like Young Guns, and it is hands down much better film than <laughs> Young Guns Two. So it's going to be an uphill climb for me to to, to get there, you know. Um, so for years I've listened to your podcast, and every time an Emilio Estevez movie comes up, you talk about you you just don't like him. You feel like he's taking somebody else's spot. Um, you don't, it's a personal thing is that you can't quite put your finger on it. Yeah. Watching Young Guns 2, probably a bit more than Young Guns, um, but a little bit for me in Young Guns as well, I was getting what you are talking about. Uh, I found him distracting and annoying actually as Billy the Kid. Uh, it was like a bad audition to be at the Joker or something that's going on there when he would tackle and 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 do all of that seemingly out of nowhere, um, just because like okay somebody died so now it's time or I'm doing something kind of ballsy so now I have to laugh maniacally like that. It felt like I, I would see him acting um, the whole time. It's 
probably was a good casting choice in the 80s and into this one. Um, but looking at who else was involved with this, and it is a talented cast, I don't know that they're necessarily used that well. Um, from this particular film, not to review Young Guns itself, but from Young Guns 2, I really, really like Kiefer Sutherland. Yep. I, I liked him in the first one. I think it's very convoluted what they do to bring him back into the story because that they spend so much time on that romantic relationship in Young Guns. And they, they sort complete. of promised us a happy ever after for Doc at the end of Young Guns. Yeah, yeah. and they completely ignore that. I mean, there is one reference that he has his family that, that he needs to get back to. Yeah. Um, but then that's, that's it. I think that's the explanation as to uh, why he's there. But it's kind of thankless, and Kiefer Sutherland is a way, way better actor than Emilio Estevez. And I I don't know how he would have done as Billy the Kid, but he, to me, as an actor, would be a better choice. Um, He's the better actor, and he got the better part. I think Doc is the better part between those two. But, yeah, I would love to see Kiefer playing the Billy the Kid role. But you know who else I would like to see the Billy the Kid role? Anybody else. But... For all, of, for all of my criticisms... Christian Slater, of Christian Slater would be perfect. Yeah, Christian Slater would have Christian been a good Slater team. Christian Slater is the movie. Um, like, these Emilio. guys have Like, they're, they're there, and they were kind of, okay, the the, the, the Brat Pack's going to put on a, a Western. It felt like the the junior cast showed up for these Westerns. Yeah. That's what I've had trouble with with Young Guns. Um, and, like, Christian Slater is an interesting actor. I, I just... I, I don't know... A whole lot about this Arkansas Dave Rudder Rudabah, uh, but uh, like they play in this thing that he wants to be the leader and and but he's not a leader and he's kind of racist, replacing the Dermot Mulroney character from Young Guns in that way um, towards Lou Diamond Phillips character, and that's all we get. So there's not a whole lot for him to do. Kiefer Sutherland, I like when he you know calls Billy on his shit. But, again, I don't think Kiefer Sutherland is used to his full uh, ability in Young Guns 2 in particular. Maybe a bit more in Young Guns. I think that the Doc character, in a lot of ways, internally, is closer to the Christian Slater character than he wants to believe. On some level, Doc does want to be Billy the Kid in a way he does want to be in charge. He does have this in him, but he fights it. Whereas these yeah. other guys embrace it, this dark side to themselves, Doc keeps on trying to tell himself he's not one of the boys, and he's definitely one of the boys. Um, and again, that's an interesting note to play, and unfortunately most of the other actors don't have that to play. Alan Ruck is a complete nothing character in this movie. Oh. Uh, I mean, I like, I like the actor, but again, he just give him something to do. <laughs> just give him something to do. Um, I do. The, the other thing about the performance from Billy, from Emilio, is that I think that we're asked to like Billy because of the joy he takes in everything he does. Not because of what he says or what he does, but because of the joy he has in the, what he does. Like, it it hurts the stakes because he's supposed to be getting a little bit desperate here. Like, the idea that he would come in and talk about, you know... Turning, turning himself in or, or making a deal for a pardon is not exactly the most gangster, you know, badass Billy the Kid move. So he should be rocked back and on his heels. We should see, even if he doesn't want to show it, 
that he knows he's in a world of shit. And that never happens at any point in the movie. Even even the old version of Billy the Kid, when he, he's got weeks to live and he says he's dying, you don't believe that he believes it when he says that he is dying. So you are emotionally standing apart. And um, uh, I think the movie, I guess, is effective in the relationship with him and uh, William Peterson, who's playing Pat Garrett. And they're, they're, they were friends in this sort of version of the story. So that successfully... Yeah, and that successfully makes you kind of resent the Pat Garrett thing. Not that, you know, being deputized and, and, you know, hunting down outlaws was bad, but they were friends, and this does feel like a betrayal in this version of the story. Of course, it's a cop-out, because in this version of the story, Billy is not killed by him. So then it makes you wonder what all of that build-up was for. But what, like, as far as the shootouts, the action sequences, like, did it work for you on that level at least? They're okay. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I'm so in between on them because uh, I wasn't terribly invested. Like, if Billy the Kid had full on been shot early in this film, I would have been like, great. Good stuff. Yeah. yeah. There was I nothing always, that measured the, the villains. Yeah. Um, James Colburn. Yes. I, he, yeah. He is, and I, I, I don't know if I forgot or whatever that he's in the movie. When he shows up, I'm like, thank God some adult has come to supervise this party that's gotten out of control. His that's a good scene. His few scenes in the movie are so good. And I'm just left with... His character kind of disappears. Like, why couldn't we have had more of him? Yeah, he definitely was filling the role like the, that Jack Palance thing. Like he was yeah. really going for it and like just chewing it. Like he was, he hated Billy so much, like that you could just he was drooling how much he hated Billy. But again, it, the 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 movie did come alive when he was on screen, and there were a few moments like that. I really liked the scene, and this goes back to me being a kid too, where Christian Slater and Lou Diamond Phillips get in a fight in uh, this graveyard. Uh, Christian Slater wants to loot the bones and the, you know, whatever's left behind in this graveyard, and they get into a, a really brutal <laughs> fight over it. But, uh, I don't know. There was something about how it started small and escalated to the point where you yeah. believe they were actively trying to murder each other, that that little scene by itself had a, a complete beginning, middle, and end that was, even though it was just two guys having a fight, was dramatically satisfying. And more scenes like that would have helped. I think that I have an attachment to the franchise is the problem. Like, I, I, I really like the first Young Guns, uh, and I wanted to like the second Young Guns enough to give it a pass. Again, it really hurt my feelings when, uh, you know, Kiefer Sutherland gets riddled with bullets and, and unceremoniously drops. And it's just like, well, at that point, m my emotional investment in the movie pretty much dies with Doc. Because once he died, I knew everyone else was going to die. Once Doc's off the table, like, okay, everybody's going to go. And it wasn't that I was, like, crying and heartbroken. And, oh, why did you do this to me? But I was, my energy level just sank. And, like, yeah, yeah I was sure. bummed for the character. But I was also bummed for the movie. Because I knew my hopes of it getting any better at this point were diminished. I think it was supposed to be, like, the equivalent of when early Sheen gets gets it in the first movie where you're not expecting that to happen um but in this case yeah i would say i i did i, I must have been emotionally enough invested in that part that i was like oh no no yeah. 
shit. There goes now, the actor. <laughs> I, I, there's still a half an hour of this movie left. And I, I can't at least, you know, tolerate it because I'm not going to see Kiefer Sutherland anymore. And James Coburn seems to have disappeared from the film. So I will um, say, though, if you have to go out in a Western, that is the way to go. <laughs> oh, great way. Great way to do it. There are a couple other things I want to mention as positives because I'm sounding pretty negative okay. here. Uh, I, and I do think it is an entertainment. You could do a lot worse. Believe me, a lot worse. So uh, I, I'm not completely putting my thumb down. I'm just very much in neutral land with this one. Yeah. Um, but, uh, of course, like this was the rare time that a, a, a rock artist did a song for a movie and it got an Oscar nomination. That's right, John um, Bon Jovi. Also the first person killed in the movie, John Bon Jovi. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Um, so that, like, that uh, Blaze of Glory song, it's a really good song. Yeah. Uh, by Bon Jovi know, standards, sure. <laughs> yeah. by, by, by Bon Jovi standards, but I think it... I, I'm stretching for positives here, and so <laughs> okay. it, it kind of shows up very much at the end. It, it fits this story really well, particularly when they're going to kill off as many people as they do, which I don't mind in... In most westerns, it was just Emilio Estevez that survived, and that was not. Uh, I mean, Billy the Kid survived, and that wasn't. Uh, that wasn't quite right. What's the name? I'm trying to find the name of um, the. Uh, even though it's such a, a cliche character, but like that prostitute, I, I, I liked her too. Um, oh right, Jenny. Jenny Wright, I want to say, is the name of the actress. Uh, oh yeah, Viggo Mortensen is very good too. Like you know, supporter. The, yeah. Part, yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't mind him. Bradley Whitford. He looks so young. And, yeah, Jenny Wright. Jenny Wright. Jane, yeah, Jane Greathouse. Yeah, yeah. I liked her. Uh, she was a standout for me for some reason. I, I liked her scenes. Um, well, I, she I mean, rode I, naked I, on a well, horse. That stands out. <laughs> that's before that I was impressed, but then I was like, oh, okay, good for her <laughs> doing this, kind of doing a giant fu to the entire town as she left there. But that that, that was good, and like she actually had something to do. Yeah. I mean, you if know that. that you like right. her? You should check out an old '80s vampire movie called Near Dark. She's in that. She's super hot. Yeah, I have seen uh, Near Dark, and I, I just didn't clock her as being uh, the same actor from that. So that's yeah, that's good to know. There's something else I, I kind of want to say. What was the? Oh yeah, just how many movies in the 1980s and I or 1980s, 1990s, and and I excuse this and I still excuse this, but it starts off with an old man doing the entire thing as a flashback. From Young Guns 2 to The Green Mile, you know, uh, and it was used a lot, but this is probably the clunkiest I've ever seen it because I don't believe that this man's going to stand at the side of the road and have like a two hour conversation with this guy who he thinks is insane and is claiming to be Billy the Kid. Yeah. I think uh, there was a somewhat there was a somewhat overrated, I think, Western called Little Big Man starring Dustin Hoffman. And, uh, I reviewed it on oh, the, there you go. Uh, the trailer. Uh, and oh, I yeah. think that that was the movie that's kind of responsible for popularizing that way of telling the story. And, yeah. you know, the old age wake-up and everything like that. And again, the first few times you see it, maybe it's got its qualities, but once you recognize it as a, as a, a handle into the story, it just sort of becomes, well, what it is. Um, I can't believe we've gone 20 minutes on Young Guns 2. That's oh, too much. Yeah. Too much. <laughs> Let's call yeah. it a day. It's okay. But there were still a few trails for the kind who'd be cold before they were tamed. They called them the Wild Bunch. 
Mike had been a gentleman of principle. He still had a principle or two. We're not getting rid of anybody. We're going to stick together just like it used to be. When you side with a man, you stay with him. And if you can't do that, you're like some animal. You're finished. Dutch had dug for gold. He gave up digging. How many cases did you take from the train? Sixteen cases of rifles. We lost one on the trail. He stole it. I want to meet my fiance. <laughs> So, Sam Peckinpah is, uh, you know, he didn't make a bunch of films, but for the most part, the films that he made had impact. Um, he was largely finished his career by the time I got super into movies, so I backed into the world of Peckinpah. But I had seen The Wild Bunch and Straw Dogs when I was young. Straw Dogs was impenetrable to me. I didn't understand it, and in fact, it kind of made me feel kind of queasy and sick. I just didn't... I didn't know what I was looking at. I was not ready for it. Uh-huh. I probably the same thing should have been true of The Wild Bunch, but I totally connected to The Wild Bunch. And it's one of the first movies I saw that had a quote-unquote unhappy ending, but it was still completely satisfying. Yeah. When I was a kid, I didn't understand why it was satisfying other than just the huge scale and operatic violence that the last 20 minutes of this movie sort of deteriorates into. And again, we can't. I can't overstate. For the year this came out, this is sixty, oh, sixty-nine, nineteen sixty-nine. This was <laughs> this was unbelievably violent. This this is not a western where someone gets shot and they put their hand to their chest and fall to the ground silently. Blood spurts. People scream and twitch. They take round after round after round, and we are following a gang of criminals. Who are getting long in the tooth and they're looking for their retirement they're looking for their satisfaction what is this thing that they've been after this goal that they've been after and to me and this is me watching it today the thing that they were after wasn't that one last big score and it wasn't that ranch and the retirement and the family what they were looking for was to go out in a blaze of glory on their own terms by their own choice that sounds insane and it is insane but that's what the wild bunch is to me and i think it's amazing (laughs) i think it's an amazing movie um again i think that uh, the fistful of dollars helped us get here as far as the the badass the violence gets starting to get escalated and the uh, anti-hero having darker and darker shades of gray to where you get the feeling like as much as these guys at the end of the movie are going back to rescue their buddy Angel and that feels noble, these aren't noble men. These are criminals. And uh, they're going to kill a bunch of other terrible people and they're going to die in the process. <laughs> like, there are, there are no winners, there are no losers, but it's as close to an act of redemption as these guys could ever hope to accomplish. Which is why most of them, most especially and memorably Ernest Borgnine, go into that final battle 
with huge shit-eating grins on their faces. Yes. The energy of that and just the idea of that is fucking Shakespearean. Okay? And, yes. uh, like, it's an, it's an incredibly wet, deep, violent movie. And some people just dismissed it as, like, pornographic violence because Peckinpah was known for just piling it on. Not just the blood sprays, but in slow motion. Like, you, you, you can't look away from it. He won't let you look away from it. These are violent people leaving violent lives that lead to violent deaths. And it's a five fucking star movie. That's where I start. Yeah. I, and again, I, I think that growing up and not seeing Westerns like The Wild Bunch, I had this kind of safe idea about what Westerns were, so I didn't appreciate them. And it was then discovering uh, that there are darker Westerns where there are real consequences and each kill actually means something. That when I finally saw The Wild Bunch, I was like, where are the rest of the Sam Peckinpah movies? Long me up. I, I want to do an online festival of everything that he does. Because, yeah, if we have a, a fistful of dollars leads to the Wild Bunch, I think that very directly leads to what Tarantino has been able to accomplish with his career, but also his Westerns. Yeah. Because uh, the blood flows in his movies as well. But uh, there's a reason for it. And... Yeah, these are not noble heroes in any way, shape, or form. I think that I've only had, I should have watched this more than I have, but I've only watched it twice. First time it just completely, forgive the uh, play on words here, but blew me away. (laughs) Um, uh, And it's the stuff you're describing with the amount of blood, and I I love that slow-motion shot, you know? Uh, it's kind of like in um, those great kung fu movies. You'll have that slow motion shots, uh, but it, it just adds this impact. Even if it's a secondary character or an extra in there, that has some meaning. It, it was his almost his signature shot, you know. And I would agree with you. Like Straw Dogs is an interesting one, but it does feel ex- exploitative at points. Yeah, I don't get that vibe as much here from this film I, I I just think it's spectacular the opening is unreal yeah basically destroying an entire town and the civilian casualties too I think that Huge. was relatively new because like it wasn't just the, the cops and robbers that were catching these bullets there were a lot of people in the street getting trampled and getting shot yeah yeah it, which would have really happened I mean Absolutely. we see so many movies where all the like supposedly innocent there are no innocent bystanders or like it's you know the action movies they'll shoot exactly like the rival gang or the villain or whatever here there are real consequences for the violence from the beginning to the end spectacular train robbery in film history and here if if you like that aspect of westerns which sometimes like a lot of people like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I revisited it and, and reviewed it on my show, yeah. and it just didn't do as much for me as the first time I saw it. I mean, it has a, a, several train robbery sequences, which are fine. You know, they're quite well done, but none of them hold a candle to what 
what the Wild Bunch does. Butch and Sundance yeah. is a bromance, though, whereas the Wild Bunch is, is carnage, right? It's just total carnage. What I love yeah. about the train job in the Wild Bunch is, other than the opening sequence shootout, uh, this is where we get to see not just the, the gang doing their thing, but how good they are at it. How they execute that plan perfectly and the few wrinkles that come up, they deal with on the fly effectively well. Like, in a way, it's almost too smoothly. (laughs) You know, like, they are a well-oiled machine, these guys. They've been at it for a long time. They know what the fuck they're doing. They've been been, uh, tasked to to get their hands on this cache of guns by these evil Mexican army fellows. It's complicated. Bad people doing chores for bad people. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, uh, and uh, so this is sort of the centerpiece action sequence, the train job, um, where we just we see how good these guys are. And in spite of ourselves, in spite of knowing how terrible we are, we kind of come to like them or love them a little bit just because of how well they do their jobs here. I, I also like the lead up to that is brilliant because, you know, um, one one of the wild bunch is from Mexico, and he's from a village, and he was in love with this girl. Angel, yeah. Angel, Angel's the character, and then was in love with this woman who is now basically a prostitute for the Generalismo and and his his, his army, and she get he gets so upset and so passionate when he sees her walking to the general he gets up and he can't help he he kills her right then and there murders her (laughs) he murders uh this woman because she's not innocent anymore and she's not with him and creates just a shitstorm for these guys going forward which kind of gets softened in a way but but not because. But again, you know it's not a heroic man. action. And does Angel maybe deserve to be tortured to death and you know left behind and brutalized for all of that? Well, he's behind a car. He gets dragged. dragged like it's, yeah. yeah, it's brutal. Yeah. It's brutal. But again, he's a bad guy. He did do some bad things, and this is the world he, he was did. living in. But yeah. the rest of the gang can't sit with it. They can't live with it. <laughs> And maybe in another time, maybe not that long ago, they could have rode away with their bounty and left him to his fate. But no, no, they figured out that this was the thing that they were looking for. I I, I know I've been focusing my energy on the last 20 minutes of the movie, but I just think it's so brilliant, like the way it's executed, especially the very, very start of the fight. They tried to, they come back, they try to talk the guy into bringing in their, their guy back, and he says no. Then they get a little bit more, they're back up a little bit about it, but I mean, they're completely outnumbered. They have, it doesn't look like they have any cards to play. And uh, I think the guy just gets pissed off that they're not taking him seriously. So he just cuts Angel's throat to end the debate. Yeah. And there's this pause. And the camera just glides over the crowd, over each of our characters, over like everybody. And the general is gunned down. And then another silence, because no one can fucking believe that that just happened. And then Ernest Borgnine gets this huge smile on his face, and he starts laughing. And then they shoot down the, the top command guy at the table, 
And once that happens, it just turns into bedlam. And it is seriously 10 to 15 minutes of utter carnage. And that, that yeah. machine gun, that Gatling crank gun and everything like that. It, like, But you can see them make the decision. They don't have to look to each other to say, should we do this? They never have the conversation, but they all agree that they're 100% in. And yeah. I, I don't know, it, it's somehow profound to me. I get it that it's just this bloodletting action shoot em up, but like, it gets me. <laughs> like... Very rarely has that combination of, of uh, sort of Kill Bill level violence actually been about something other than violence, you know? Yeah, it, it's so well directed. Oh. Uh, but uh, like, it's an out of control sequence. And I guess he was a kind of an out of control, kind of a wild human being, as yeah. I understand it. He appeared in some movie, I don't know which movie, in the late 70s. And I think they had to like dub his lines because he was drunk the entire time and he couldn't say his lines, but he appears in some movies um, as an actor. But he he has control over the chaos of this extreme movie, and it, it is it is so well done. I wanted to mention uh, William Holden. Yeah, he's just an actor that I, I don't think he ever got completely got his due. Like the stuff he was in, his filmography is so. Important. But he was always kind of like the 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 other guy. Like there'd be somebody else to be a little bit flashier in the movie that would be considered for attention or even awards attention. And he was just solid uh, throughout his career. And anytime he's in the movie, I, I'm in. It's, I, I just love him, and he's uh, he does such a great job of playing this you know this aging gunfighter. Um, who, you know, needs to prove this to himself. And again, that Blaze of Glory goal, I think, is very much there. They claim it's about money, but it's it's not. And I totally believe him in, in every single moment. Like, the acting, not just all the shoot 'em ups and the violence and the style of it, there's some pretty good acting in this movie, too. I think the Holden thing is that his acting is a little bit invisible. I said a similar thing about Bill Paxton, upon memory like he is sort of the king of making it look easy holden's never really flashy about it. he's never asking you to say look at me look at me look at me he's just a hundred percent there for the character and uh like uh, he would be a great member to your cast because he just seems like such a team player to me it's not about this diva elbowing everybody out off the screen it's doing the job and he does the job every time yeah. Um, I mainly know Holden from this movie, though. <laughs> so, um, like Bridge on the River Kwai, of course, yeah. And Network, or right? One of I even reviewed. Um, he's part of this huge ensemble cast for The Towering Inferno, which I reviewed on my show. I and barely just, remember that movie. Yeah, <laughs> there he wasn't. Maybe again, not the flashiest person in the film. He doesn't have the the, the flash of Steve McQueen or Paul Newman in that, but. But he's just a solid presence in any movie he was in. I guess he kind of he he, he liked the drink a little bit too much, and I think that he was kind of a tragic last few years of his life there, where he was losing film projects left, right, and center. But um, in his time, he he was just an absolutely amazing actor, and so yeah. I wish more people would check out his stuff. And speaking of checking out their stuff, Sam Peckinpah. I mean. Uh... People, Straw Dogs is a controversial movie, and what is the Osterman weekend is like 
not the most amazing send-off for a great director, but I mean, his movies are worth checking out. I yes. do think we're talking about the high watermark for Sam Peckinpah right here Probably. with the Wild Munch. But uh, if you haven't seen it, check it out. Also, this is maybe a sub-note, but it's responsible for one of my all-time favorite Monty Python sketches. <laughs> that's right. That's, that was so good. Yes. Yeah. The, uh, oh, from the original series, there's this garden party where there's a bunch of people sipping tea and playing the piano, and all of a sudden it just goes into this slow-motion, brutal violence thing that's... 1,000% like shot for shot out of the Wild Bunch and Sam Peckinpah and it is fucking hilarious. It is. <laughs> so, That's a brilliant sketch. Oh, uh, yeah. For this reason and many others, I encourage you to check out the Wild Bunch. Is there anything yeah. else you wanted to say? No, no. Please do. Yeah, Boom. sure. This town, I really think it's like something out of the Bible. What part of the Bible? The part right before God gets angry. Men wanted to be him. You best hand over the gun, Phil. Otherwise, I'm just going to have to step over there and slap you around some. Women wanted to love him. I love you, Phil. Right now, I love you too, Jane. And outlaws wanted to be the one to kill the legend. An awful lot of people want a piece of Wild Bill. Wild Bill? I come here to kill you. He wants me to show some color. Don't do it, Bill! Jeff Bridges. I don't explain myself. Not to you, not to nobody. Ellen Barkin. Man that kills Wild Bill is gonna be awful famous. John Hurt, Diane Lane, Keith Carradine, Christina Applegate, Bruce Dern, and David Arquette said that you were a horse molester. You say what horse? In a film by Walter Hill. Be seeing you around, Wild Bill. Wild Bill. Take a walk on the wild side. Okay, so Wild Bill, directed and written by Walter Hill and starring Jeff Bridges. You and I have a history with Jeff Bridges. Yeah. I spoke with you an entire episode talking about the dude on your show. Um, so I think you know that I come in a fan of Bridges. Walter Hill is one of these directors that I want to be a fan of. He's made some good movies, he's made some bad movies, but I just, he's not dependable. I, I wish I could say that he was for the ones that are good. And he obviously likes the Western genre. He made this one, and he made another, I think, kind of terrible proto-Western called Last Man Standing with Bruce Willis. Right. Um, so, I mean, he's not necessarily stretching himself here. And this sort of presents itself as a biopic of Wild Bill Hickok. But what it ends up being, at least to me, is sort of like, not even the greatest hits, but Wild Bill's most violent hits. It, it, it's like in a hurry to rush through all of the shootouts that he was famously involved in and all of the you know, famous people that he interacted with in the most efficient way that Walter Hill can possibly get it out. It's like 96 minutes. Um, and I think it wants to be maybe a little bit more of an epic. It's looking to be closer to Wyatt Earp than whatever it is here. Now, Wyatt Earp is not a great movie and this is not a great movie, but somewhere in between the two, I think a great movie could have existed. Um, I, I, 
I appreciate what they're going for as far as making a historical biopic, like, move. Like, they don't want to meander and have you sit on the porch and, like, sift into it. But I think the essential failure, and I have to call it that, of the movie is by the end of the movie, I didn't feel like I knew Wild Bill. I knew that he killed a bunch of people, and I knew the circumstances that led up to those people's deaths. But I didn't know why he was such a fundamentally violent drunk person i didn't know who he was or you know what made him tick even a little bit it's a series of gunfights and there's some fine performances in here too john hurt sort of serves as our narrator and his best friend and i have always had a, a super soft spot for ellen barkin uh she can really bring the sexy when she wants to and and Calamity jane is just this woman who's covered in dirt and muck and mud and uh you know, has all of this <laughs> nasty sass to her. But in spite of it, I find her super attractive. <laughs> this movie also has, pleasingly, one of the least romantic sex scenes that I've ever seen. <laughs> it's actually quite lovely, in a way, how unromantic it is. <laughs> but... Yeah, I know what you're saying there. <laughs> um, so, like, it has moments where I'm into it, and, uh, you know, there's things that I think it does quite well. I like the way the Native Americans are treated largely in the movie. And uh, especially the first couple of times he does it, these sort of bleary opium flashbacks that uh, Wild Bill has, where we get these canted, angled, black and white, sort of strange visual aesthetics to some of the storylines, just to give us a different visual energy to the movie periodically. I think he returns to that maybe more often than he should, but uh, it was, I like what he was going for. And in the end of the day, I think that's my feelings about Wild Bill. I really liked what they were going for. I don't think they closed the deal on it. I've actually been to Deadwood, the place where uh, the, this movie takes place, or the, the bulk of it takes place, and been in the bar, presumably, or probably a rebuild of the bar that he was, the table he was sitting at where he got shot in the back. And they have details up to what cards he was holding in his hands at the time. And here's something that the Deadwood tourist industry does that I think is more respectful than the movie. <laughs> they didn't even name the man who pulled the trigger on him there. It's a historical site. But at the site, Wild Bill Hickok was shot in the back of the head by a coward. Mm -hmm. yeah. They spend a lot of time with David Arquette trying to like give him a backstory as to why this happened. That, 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 that there was a reason for him doing this other than anything of notoriety. And they also go a bunch of steps to make him a pathetic coward. And every minute of screen time they spend on him is fucking waste as far as you're concerned. We know where this is going. We don't like him. We're never supposed to like him. And I don't think he works as a character. I don't pity him. I don't like him. I don't care about him. So uh, I don't even hate him. <laughs> it's just like he's just another character who's got to serve as the guy who pulls the trigger at the end of the movie. It's inevitable. So... I'm lukewarm on Wild Bill, but I want to be warm on it. I want to be warm on it. Talk me down. Well, I remember when it came out and I didn't get to see it, and I've had trouble finding this movie for years. I had to go to a digital uh, place to, uh, to, get, to get a hold of it, to, to rent it. Um, and I, you know I'm an Oliver Stone fan. Yep. And Oliver Stone in the 90s, right? And so that, what that means is that, you know, very kinetic editing and the mix of black and white photography with color photography 
So when I would see <clears throat> some trailers for it, I'm like, this, this is the kind of visual style I really like when it when it came out in uh, 1995. But it, I, I never got a chance to see it till now. Now I'm, you know, a little bit more balanced. Uh, like the visual look can't sort of win me over completely with the movie. But I think I, I do want to start off with the positive that the movie does look really good. Uh, and the black and white photography and those opium sequences you were talking about are unreal. I mean, I don't. It, it looks like digital photography, but it's not digital photography. It, it was a very unique style. I, I, I guess with um, Walter Hill, like he was a, a bit of a cowboy type, you know, that's where he feels comfortable. He actually um, directed the pilot for the TV show Deadwood. Oh, nice. And won an Emmy for um, So it was like he returned to Deadwood, and it was almost maybe to make up for this movie, where mm-hmm. I think he, he missed a lot of opportunities. Now, the other piece in here that I don't know maybe is a factor, it, it, it was based on a play. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, I would suggest that the theater piece probably... Uh, was expecting audience members to, or there would have been something in the program, know a bit more about Wild Bill Hickok and Clamity Jane and all of these folks. But the movie would probably need something more, and it's a very, very strange opening to the film in many ways, because we just go through all these random events. They, they highlight the date, they highlight the location they happen where it happened um, and it was just like this I don't know what like 10 minute overview of his life that doesn't really have a whole lot to do with like the main story that's being told yeah. and I think you're right in a more like, a TV miniseries or a more epic movie two, two hour plus movie maybe dare I say three hours we could you know spend some time in each like they a lot of them are very interesting aspects to his life, but we, we aren't given enough time to, to spend with this. Hell, most right. of them could have been movies by themselves. Probably. Or episodes. Again, I think that long-form television piece is, is, a, is a good approach for, for, for something like this. We spend way too much time with David Arquette, who, when he showed up, I couldn't help, even though it was years before this, but I was like, Oh, now Dewey's showing up. So, uh, you know, it was... He he couldn't really get out of that for me. The movie forgets it's about Wild Bill Hickok every time he's on screen for some reason. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know if... And Arquette is okay. I, I'm, I'm not an enormous fan. Like, there's, there's good, bad, and ugly in his filmography there. The problem with the part was not Arquette, I will say. I, I don't yeah, think... I, I suppose so, but I, and I guess we're, we're supposed to be sort of annoyed by him. It's kind of like the Emilio Estevez thing. I was just like, can we get away from him and spend time with uh, some of the others? Even Christina Applegate is, is pretty good as this prostitute who kind of humors our, our cat. She is way more interesting. Her introduction, she comes in and she just randomly like, shoots somebody who's... The ear, yeah. And we don't see anything like that again it's like what's the story with this woman like her her story would be much more compelling than than anything we're getting from these subplots 
Well, speaking of the subplots, there was one of the many quick slapdash shootouts that they show us through in this date, in this place. Uh, while Bill is sort of flustered, uh, he's sort of t- bullied into a gunfight, and somebody beh- startles him from behind, and he spins and shoots and kills one of his own deputies. Yes. Now, if we knew who that deputy was and what their relationship was, and if we didn't immediately jump to several years later to see the immediate reaction from Wild Bill, that would have mattered. He yeah. killed a deputy, he, one of his yes. friends, presumably, by it. It was a mistake. Clearly, it was accidental. But what were the repercussions of that? How did Bill react? No, we're moving on to the next scene. And as far as the movie's concerned, it doesn't matter what his reaction is. There was violence. You didn't want to not see that violence, but we're not going to stick around to no. deal with the repercussions. One of the better sequences in of that ilk, but they do spend a little bit more time on it, is the sequence with Bruce Stern. Yes. <laughs> and he's he was, uh, I guess, a member of this gang or whatever, and they tried to ambush Bill, and Bill ended up shooting... Uh, his brother. His, his brother it was, right? And so then, like, Bruce Stern, I don't know why he always looks old. <laughs> He's looked old since the 70s. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, like, coming home and, like, movies like that. But anyway, he, he's this old man in a wheelchair. Um, it's, like, set out in the middle of, uh, I don't even know if it was Deadwood. It was, it was some location. And then calls Bill out for this shootout, which is going to end predictably. But there's just something about that extended cameo by Bruce Stern that gave the film some life. It was that hard was, not to think of the Hateful Eight during that sequence, too, actually. Yeah. Uh, well, and even Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I thought of, because Bruce Stern has got this one-scene role there, too. He, he just makes a meal out of some secondary character every time. Bruce Stern's right? not always in good movies, but he's always good in them. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Um, so Ellen Barkin... Yeah, I agree. She's very attractive, and I cheer for her, and I, 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 I want to... I haven't watched this TV show she's in, which is the American version of Animal King, Kingdom, but um, I, I've always liked her. Unfortunately, I kept thinking that she was miscast as Calamity Jane. Oh, really? Yeah, I I don't know. I, I was distracted by it. I think she, like, she might have even been good in the Diane Lane role, and maybe Diane Lane as Calamity Jane, but I... I just kept thinking, you know, this is, and maybe she wanted to stretch herself and do something different, and that's perfectly fine. But I she has nice moments, but it's it's. I liked uh, how rough and dirty she was. <laughs> you know what I mean? Calamity Jane, like Calamity Jane, but she she seems to be missing like what what a big mistake is. Calamity Jane was a like a Western hero and almost like a feminist Western hero herself, but. To watch this film and this particular version, she spends most of her time is why doesn't Wild Bill love me? Like loves Diane yeah. Lane and, and well, I, here's and, where you know, I guess I'll disagree. On, here's where I'll disagree on the performance. I get what you're saying is, and she's so tough she shouldn't be whittled down by things like love. But her love is mixed with anger because I think she kind of hates herself for how much she loves Bill because it's out of character for her. So she get she gets weirdly pissed off about it. <laughs> She genuinely loves Bill, and that, in a way, makes 
Bill able to get to her in a way no one else in the world can. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it makes her fragile. It makes her, quote-unquote, a girl. And she hates that. <laughs> but we don't get to see a whole lot of the other side of her as the gunfighter. And, you know, uh, there's a, a quick introduction, but it's not really all that that much. Like, she get towards the climax, and when she's running and she's, like, uh, she, like getting the guns and giving them to, to Bill. But I, I just think there was a bit of a disservice to the Calamity Jane character, who I think could have a, a really interesting movie. Okay. I just I was distracted by Barkin in the role for some reason. Well, I like Diane Lane. I always like Diane Lane. and She's safe, she's, safe bet, usually. Yeah. yeah, the flashback sequences and kind of her her arc. That was an interesting enough story. It's unfortunate, like, and it did, does have a purpose connected to David Arquette's part of the story but that was so much more compelling than the main the main story it was just kind of a, a sloppy rendering I guess it probably comes from the play of led up to Wild Bill being being shot yeah. in the back there we haven't talked a lot about Jeff Bridges well I was just going to say uh, and I think that's telling Jeff Bridges is a really good actor um, but I don't know that I felt he inhabited this role I think the problem is like I said the script because usually he's just asked to shoot somebody. He's typically responding. And we don't get to know Bill. We just see him reacting to these situations, but we don't access him. I, I think he's trying, but I think he might be a little bit hobbled by the script. Um, I guess I can say he looks the part. I don't think that Jeff Bridges is capable of making a completely uninteresting performance, but I, I can't say that he knocked it out of the park. I can't say that it was an amazing performance. Like... You, you watch him in another Western like True Grit. That's a fucking amazing performance, yes. right? Exactly. Uh, so it, it's not bad, but he is the center of the movie, and it, it, it's adequate. And I, I usually am, am much more enthusiastic about Jeff Bridges than saying adequate. So uh, I think that's telling as well. From, from reading the trivia behind the movie, I, I get the sense that Walter Hill's style and Bridges' style clashed. Um, Walter Hill only wanted to do one or two takes and wanted to move on. Bridges asks to do several takes and he wants to try different things each time and kind of experiment with it a little bit. And Walter Hill didn't like that. Right. And I, so I wonder if some of the stuff that Bridges wanted to do was kind of either cut off or shot down or could have been a victim of editing well. And again, I, I don't want to talk shit about Bridges. This is not what I was trying to do, but I just... He's the main character of the movie, and it, it, it was part of the draw of the movie, frankly. Jeff yes. Bridges as Wild Bill Hickok. And in a way, we spent 15, 16 minutes talking about it, and we've just got around to talking about yeah. Jeff Bridges. That says something. I, I will say, though, I thought... I can understand why he took the role because he gets to be, uh, you know, roll around with Diane Lane um, in bed and he gets to be in this tub completely naked with uh, Ellen Barkin. And again, uh, that sex scene in the bar. <laughs> that's such an awkward. And I was just, I, I can't believe I didn't see it coming. I should have seen it coming, but what a, what a blue balling moment that is. When <laughs> <laughs> get to that. How <laughs> do we get to that? Yeah, they're just... You're right in the middle of something, you guys. Do we yeah. need to do this now? But the blue balls is a good metaphor for how I feel yeah. about the movie overall. 
because like I just like I wanted to be blown away by it, and I just wasn't. It it didn't get me there. <laughs> Good enough. Yeah, that's that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> Hey, fellas, I don't think this bum knows where he is. They call this place Valley of Violence. Once you back up, before you find out why. You talk too much. Now, don't worry, everyone. You are going to see a fight. Oh, I love a good fight. <laughs> you going to face me like a man or what? You started this. I'm going to finish it, too. Oh, he just spit on him. He just spit on Gilly. I am the marshal here in Denton, and I can't have people thinking this kind of business goes on around here. So you find yourself another town, far away from here. We gotta keep our heads down, okay? He can't get away with this. He almost took your head off. I'm gonna end it, and I'm gonna prove to him what I am capable of. No, 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 you're making a mistake. You should have never come up against me. That's a long way down. Oh. Okay. In a valley of violence, here we are, Dupre, once again talking about Ty West. In this case, the writer, director, and editor of In a Valley of Violence. And a uh, complete sort of change of tone in some ways from, you know, his typical horror affair. Um, he did the House of the Devil, he did the Innkeepers, and he did the Sacrament. Uh, he did some other things too, but those three in particular, I think, are very fine genre horror entries. And uh, Cabin Fever too, if you must, and The Roost. He's done other things. Um, in a Valley of Violence, in a weird way, does stay true to the Thai West formula to a degree in his focus on character and his willingness to take its, his time with things. In a way, it is, it is a very complete package movie, uh, you know, revenge movie by itself. But it could almost play as a series of, like, short vignettes and films. There's this story about this badass Ethan Hawke who shows up in this town with a dog, and he gets bullied by this Marshall's son, <laughs> James Ransone. And James Vansone plays such a fucking son of a bitch in this movie. He's such an asshole. <laughs> um, he's, a, he's, a, he's a good actor. That You see him in like the second season of The Wire, and he was in the It Chapter 2. Um, you know, he's been around, and he's, he's got this most punchable delivery in this movie. Like, you dislike him right away, and he keeps on giving you reasons to dislike him more. Um, but it's funny because, like, we just talked about Wild Bill, and... We see scene after scene where Wild Bill is goaded into gunfire in about 30 seconds. This, this lambasting, this like yelling and, and drawing him out of the bar seems to just go on and on and on and is drawn out in this weird, typically Ty West way. So when he finally gets laid out, it is so dramatically satisfying. You're just like, yes. And strangely, when... He, Ethan Hawke actually spits on him. I laughed out loud at the sheer audacity and darkness of the movie. And this is just sort of the instigating action of the movie. Him punching out this Marshall's son starts a domino effect that leads to a lot of badness. Here's another reason the movie totally works for me. I am a dog person. 
This this movie makes you like Ethan Hawke is basically playing the the tough ass stranger who shows up in the town. He might as well be the man with no name. But he's got a dog and he fucking loves that dog and because of that we love the dog and because it's a western we know that dog is going to die and because it's a western that dog does die. <laughs> and uh because of that more so than it like we've seen we're going to talk about a western later about a guy's whole family gets wiped out and we got to be on side with him. I am so on board with this vengeance. <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous. And he was willing to take it. He was willing to walk away. He was willing to let all of this other bullshit go. But they killed his dog. So now people gotta die. <laughs> it is a very, very simple, straightforward revenge story. But it is told with a lot of style and a sneaky amount of humor. It is brutally violent, too. Like, the tones shouldn't work. But maybe it's because I come in as a Thai West fan. Or maybe it's just... Uh, I don't know, just just the because, like I said, I, I, I'm such a dog person that it hit me personal that I needed to see this vengeance dealt out, and I was gonna be be cheering for it. But I really, really like this this movie. Uh, it's obviously very like intentionally retro from its title sequences and everything like that. It's very conscious of the westerns that came before it, but it is successfully, I think, in its own way, its own thing. And also, one more thing before I hand it over to you. The first time in years and years I have seen John Travolta in a movie where not only do I say he didn't suck, I say he's actually really good in this movie. <laughs> it's been a while, Mr. Travolta, but thank you. I'm a big fan of In a Valley of Violence, but I am willing to hear a second opinion. Well, you've pretty much taken all of my notes right there. <laughs> oh, did I? Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh... Yeah, I will say, like, I've become a Thai West fan now because of uh, last time I was on the show reviewing the sacrament. Yeah. I don't like In a Valley of Violence as much as the sacrament. Okay. Sacrament just still thinking about it just Chilling. chills me to my bones, <laughs> you know. Um, one of the other things, that, as far as, like, drawing him out to this gunfight so that this, you know, this jerk can, like, show what a great gunfighter he is. Uh, after all this taunting and bullying, the reason that Hawk get, leaves is because he's going to go after his dog. Yep. That's why he, he comes out and, and deals with him that way. What I like about um, a lot of this is... Um, what, what I like about the film is the, there's no... There's a little bit, with the exception of a, one character in particular, there's some complexity and I'm glad you mentioned Travolta again it was just like yes he he must be way more invested in this movie uh, than a lot of the stuff he's been doing lately or maybe you recognize that it's a really good screenplay and a good opportunity but he's actually not a bad character like I thought he was going to be like the, the two dimensional um, villain of the piece and no, he has some complexity. He, he recognizes his son's an idiot. Yeah. Right? And he's trying to find ways to get rid of... Uh, to get rid of this guy who's embarrassed his son. You know, and banning him from the town and all that. And just trying to heal the situation. But he has no control over his son, who then rounds up, you know, a bunch of the officers. And goes chasing after Hawk, which leads to 
um, it's a, a terrible sequence involving the dogs. Mm-hmm. So that was like a, a horrific Ty West moment. And like that whole sequence is like, I, I would dare anybody, even the, the, the kindest hearted person who doesn't believe in the death penalty or <laughs> violence or anything, you're going to want these people to suffer. Like you thought um, John Wick was bad? John Wick spared us, really. <laughs> yes. So um, that, that all works. Uh, you, you kind of highlighted the performance that doesn't work for me, unfortunately. And you can make an argument that maybe he was just so good at being this jerk that that's why I'm reacting this way. But I just found, uh, you know, Ransom just so over the top, beginning to end. When everybody else seems to be kind of layering their performances with a certain amount of, of realism, I guess Karen Gillian, when we first see her, um, she's from Doctor Who and all of that stuff who plays his wife the first time I, I saw the two of them I was like this feels like the acting Olympics between these two and it's just it was just too much she kind of her performance calmed down but he like stayed way over the top through the whole thing and was distracting me and it was kind of to me I feel the weak link of the picture I mean we're not supposed to like him but I think there would be a way to get to that point without it being like as actory and as showy as, okay. as well, it appears. When, when Hawk is so subtle and Travolta, who's an overactor supreme, he's he's playing it pretty subtle too in this film. Yeah. Um, you, so, you wouldn't expect and, uh, Travolta to fit comfortably in this world, and he totally does. I think what you might be connecting to, I, I, I like Renzone as an actor. I, I didn't necessarily think he was overplaying it, but I think his character is the one character in the entire movie without dimension. Yes. That might be a writing flaw, but it also might be deliberate. There is nothing to him except for a petulant bully. He's basically a spoiled rich kid. His dad has run the town his whole life, and he's you know never been punished, ever, for anything he's done. There's never been any repercussions to him, and there's no dimension to him. The bad guys all have dimension to him. <laughs> the, the, the one character who decides you know he wants people to address him by his name you know my my name is Lawrence <laughs> uh and uh whatever yeah drawing the drawing the line we could see him there's another one of the guys who knows this is all stupid and he tells like he doesn't want to be involved with killing the dog or killing this guy he knows it's dumb and uh he's got dimension he's sort of dragged into it and he has to face the repercussions whether he wanted to be involved or not that gives us layers. That's a great Gillian, Karen Gillan character, she, yeah, she's hard to read at first until we understand that she's recently discovered that she's pregnant. Uh, I think to me that, that, that made her emotional ups and downs make more sense because yeah. A, she's realizing that her life is going to change monumentally and she's realizing just what, just how terrible the man that she's with is. And she has to. Yeah. She has to be supportive of him. She has to be with him because they're a family now. But I, I don't buy that it was this incident and this day that she clued into that. Right. Like the, the way that this guy operates, this this would not be a surprise. The fact that she all of a sudden it wasn't really until he hit her, like he hits his pregnant wife. Yeah. Um, and before he knows she's pregnant, I think he does that though, right? Is it after that that yeah I think she reveals it after she after he's but you know I don't know it, it's picky because I really do like this movie 
uh, a lot, but some of the some of the stuff that was so creepy and real and uncomfortable in the sacrament is not as much here. And maybe it's not fair to compare two movies that are totally different and one that's being done as a full the, documentary type of thing. The, the full found footage reality of the this movie is a, is a maybe not a romantic western, but it's a stylized western. You know, yeah. so we yeah. we have more separation from it. Um, I also wanted to mention Larry Fessenden. Uh, he yes. he yeah. plays one of the guys who's more into the idea of killing Ethan and the dog, and uh, he has a very very grisly death in a bathtub yes. in this movie. And uh, I will say, fair warning. I mean, all the movies we've talked about have been violence, but there there are some surprising uh, bursts of real gore <laughs> in this movie. And if that's going to be a problem for you, fair fair <laughs> fair warning. That's where the horror movie director showed up was that scene. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I do want to go back to Travolta because I wouldn't have thought that Travolta would have fit comfortably into this world. And in a way, when I heard about this movie coming down the pipes, I mean, I was sold with written and directed by Ty West, but my only real reservation was John Travolta. And it's not even that I hate John Travolta. He's been great in movies. It's just been a real long time since I felt like either he was invested in a movie or that he was in a movie worth him or anyone's time. This is that movie. <laughs> like, yeah. um, if, you were, if you're a Travolta fan uh, and you want to see some redemption in him as an actor, check out this movie. And if you're not a Travolta yes. fan, do not let his presence dissuade you. Um, no. he, he has a love-hate thing with his son because he kind of hates what a piece of shit his son is. But he loves him because it's his son. And it's a tough road to uh, hoe for him. Like, uh, he's not necessarily what you call, like, the white hat good guy of the picture. But his motivations are at least understandable. Yeah. And uh, it's nuanced. And there's lots of little details about the character, too. His, his weird limp that he has. And uh, his interaction with the other yeah, so boys. Uh, the fact that everybody is more scared of him than they are of Ransone. Like, they have no respect or fear for Ransone. They're just worried that if they get mad at him, his old man's going to come down on him. Like, the real authority in the town is Travolta. And he surprisingly carries it well. Uh, the other thing I'll say is Ethan Hawke, who's been doing more westerns lately. Um, he fits into the milieu quite nicely. I mean... Clint Eastwood is always going to be a tough act to follow, and this is the type of role that Clint Eastwood would have, but I think he does the job. It's not flashy, and again, I, I was just sort of being lukewarm on, on Jeff Bridges in the, the Wild Bill movie uh, for maybe underplaying things, but this movie is calling for that. Uh, we have to cheer for him. I think, like I said at the beginning, the dog does a lot of the work for us, but Ethan Hawke is there for me in this movie, and... Uh, Again, Ethan Hawke is just a strangely dependable actor. Again, not always in great movies, but rarely do I think he sucks in a movie. You know, and the, he really has some grit in this performance. I, 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 I liked him. Like I was, I was interested how it would go, and him and Travolta in particular. Um, but yeah, beginning to end, like I, he, he won me over in first moments of his performance, and that that didn't stop until you know throughout right, right right till the end um a couple more things i want to say like uh again spoilers but travolta's uh demise is epic yep really touch, touch comedic 
in some dark way, but what happens, I don't think I've seen something quite like that in a Western before, and as you said, it's a very predictable genre, but what happens there I was, it was really interesting. So, uh, you know, um, I'm spoiling it for those who haven't seen it that he dies, but uh, the journey to get to that point is, is really interesting. Well, I wanted to mention an actor. I don't know if I'm the only person who's a fan of this person, but I, I always like seeing her and stuff. That uh, Tasia Formega. I haven't seen and, her in a lot, but I thought she was fine in here. Yeah. Yeah. She plays Marianne, and she's she wants out of this town. She kind of sees Ethan Hawke as a, a vehicle for that, and it's there's a little bit of it's a love story sub, subplot, but it's kind of done in a in a clever way they acknowledge the age difference like Ethan Hawke actually says like you know she could be my my daughter at one point um and he's got his baggage connected to uh, his past as far as that stuff I, I like how that all plays out but I, I, I like her scenes because uh, he's so quiet and understated but then she's so verbose and so energetic and she's you know um uh so interested in him and 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 as like a really good person who's kind of stuck in this terrible situation. So I, I think she could get lost in the mix there, but I, I, I look her. She's been in a lot of the seasons of American Horror Story, yeah. um, and she's, to me, always been kind of good in that show too. Um, Vera Farmiga's sister, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I uh, Closest thing to like a, a criticism to, I think the town feels underpopulated. It really, it does feel like these are the only eight people in the town. It doesn't have a lived-in quality. That might be a budgetary thing. There's also a notable lack of horses present for a Western film. <laughs> um, and again, these are quibbles. I, 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 I mean, I feel like I've been sort of <laughs> pushing, pushing, pushing. I'm a fan of the director, and I like that he jumped genres. He's kind of been doing a lot more TV work. I haven't. I don't know when we're going to get another Ty West picture, yeah. but sign me up. I like what this guy does, and um, usually, like I, I, I like to say that I like genre directors who stick with their genre. Who like, I, I'm okay with making a horror movie every few years for the rest of my life. I don't feel the need to prove myself, and you know, as a serious quote unquote filmmaker. I say if you make a good horror movie, you are a serious filmmaker. You are, but. Yeah, this convinces me that Ty West uh, could probably work in any genre that he felt passionate about. So if it's got his name on it, I'm going to be there. And I'll I'll defend the the town thing. I don't think the town in uh, Fistful of Dollars is that populated either. It's just the members of the two gangs and then the three people who are in between the two. There's yeah. more people just that we see on screen, but again, all of them play yeah. a role in the plot. There's no superfluous dude who works at the you know corner store or anything like that for some reason like, there's no family of farmers that live on the edge of town that we get to see or anything like that it's just a sheriff and two prostitutes and three hired guns and that's it is what it feels like but again it's a small complaint i don't mean to be real about it is there anything else you want to say about a valley of violence no, I enjoyed it. Uh, maybe my expectations based on the sacrament were a little bit high, right. and you had been telling me how great it was. So uh, I think I'll revisit it again, and hopefully I'll be a little bit more positive. I'm, it's not that I'm not positive, but I'm not you know, willing to uh, you know, give my bank account away on this one. Fair enough. Get out of the way, woman! 
whenever I get to liking someone, they ain't around long. I notice when you get to disliking someone, they ain't around for long either. Well, the one that everyone's so scared of, Al. Yeah. We got the Josie Wales, Abe. We got reward money coming. You're wanted, Wales. You a bounty hunter? Yeah, he's got to do something for a living these days. Diane ain't much of a living, boy. He was out for revenge, and they were out for his blood. And when you're an outlaw, there's no turning back. You're all alone now, Wales. Not quite alone. He lives by the gun. He lives by his word. And he lives for revenge. He's an army of one. Clint Eastwood is the outlaw Josie Wales. All right, we started with a Clint Eastwood picture. We're going to finish with a Clint Eastwood picture. This one he actually directed as well when the original director was fired something like eight days into production. Um, the outlaw Josie Wales. Um, again, this was 1976. The popularity of the western was officially over it seemed weirdly late in the game for them to be doing another clint eastwood western this is more the dirty entering towards the dirty harry phase uh, the gritty cop drama of the 70s sort of taking over um but no they're going to do this movie and then clint eastwood who'd already you know uh i think he directed two movies before this the uh so he'd already sort of proven that he was able to direct a movie decided you know they're firing the director he can sort of take over directing this thing and he's been in a lot of westerns <laughs> like even by 76 he you know he had he'd been more than around this block a few times so and he'd worked with brilliant directors so why couldn't he do a really great job it's a very celebrated western this outlaw josie wales and it is very very beautifully photographed and uh, there's a lot of good acting in it and once again like we've talked about throughout these western movies it's a fairly straightforward revenge western. And it's sort of, I think, legitimized, at least to, uh, to some people, the people who saw the movie anyway, Clint Eastwood as Clint Eastwood the director, not just Clint Eastwood the actor. And a lot of people who really appreciate the western hold this one up to a high bar. To me, The Outlaw Josie Wales is the movie that is being commented on in Unforgiven. Or, or well, probably more so the fistful of dollars. This guy's a little bit more motivated because his entire family is killed. But uh, this celebration of badassery and bloody vengeance as being a form of straight entertainment. I think what Josie Wales does is elevate it instead of just being another Western. This is a very well photographed, very, you know, prestige well-written, well-executed Oscar bait Western. It's not just another Western. It's doing the same thing that every other Western does, but it's doing it in that big, look-at-me, polished kind of way. And people weren't used to seeing that in a Western, and that sort of made it pop and stand out. I mean, not since, like, The Searchers or, you know, some of the great old John Wayne Westerns had something been really, really mounted with such energy and scale in the, in the western genre a lot of times they're just like how can we shoot a quick sheep shoot them up you know and get her done so 
all of the presentation of it is sort of helped to elevate the picture to mean maybe I think a little bit more than it is at the end of the day. It's another completely watchable, enjoyable Clint Eastwood revenge picture. But that's all. I think it's a three and a half star movie and it got five star treatment, right? It, it, it's, it's a very enjoyable, very handsomely mounted, well done revenge story, like many, many others. I think uh, I'm more impressed almost away with the, the directing than I am with the acting. And I think maybe because he's doing double duty, uh, Josie comes a little bit softer as a portrayal than we even usually get from the stoic Clint Eastwood. He has some good scenes early in the movie when he's first lost his family, when we see real emotion on him. But for the rest of the movie, he's he's Clint Eastwood. <laughs> uh, it wasn't until, like, uh, yeah, like I said, later in his career when he started commenting on this, when he sort of started taking it apart and satire, satirizing it. Um, so at the time this movie came out, it was a very modern Western. Um, and it feels less modern watching it through today's eyes. I liked it, but I felt like I was supposed to love it. That's where I start. Yeah, I, I get all your points on that one. Um, I think, in terms of was High Plains Drifter before this. I believe so. Yeah, I think High Plains Drifter and then Play Misty for me were his directorial. Um, and they each had a little bit of a comment on uh, the protagonist characters and wasn't quite as as simple uh, a thing. This has a historical context in many ways because of the Civil War right. idea. He's, of course, you know, a Confederate. Um, he lives in the South, and it's the Union soldiers that come in and kill his family at the beginning. It does come and off as sympathetic to the South, does it not? <laughs> yes. It does, which is really kind of interesting. Um and just portraying the the, uh, the Union soldiers as Monsters. not scared dealing, like there's a, a surrender situation there, which is just an ambush, which adds to um, Josie Wales' hatred for um, the one the one soldier in particular, but basically that, that whole that whole army. And then he just goes through and he starts to have this reputation. We get a little bit of a comment on the media making him out to exaggerating what kind of a killer he is and how, how bad he is. Um, I think, uh, okay, like I wrote a ton of notes for some reason on this. It's mm -hmm. a longer movie, I think, and maybe that's perhaps why I was writing tons of notes. Uh, I, I want to say, like, um, Chief Dan George is yeah. just a wealthy presence. He, he, uh, little big man, he was fantastic in that movie. And he was in his and, late 70s doing this movie. Yes. Yeah. yeah. He couldn't remember lines, so... Um, Eastwood had a bit of a method to work with him a little bit uh, and then kind of got him to like work on his lines but then improvise on the day of shooting and then they just kind of worked with it like, you wouldn't necessarily know it and like there's he's just uh, just a wonderful character as being kind of the, the sidekick on this on this journey and I also like the other uh, indigenous woman there um, who uh who comes comes along and out tricks um, Chief Dan George kind of early in the film there. And I also like the fact in this film, which was kind of unusual still for, for 76, I think they were trying to make progress, but 
we, we do have uh, a tribe of, of Indians, American Indians, who are viewed as, as, as villains and dangerous. And then Josie Wales goes and meets with, um, uh, was it Sitting Bull or, um, I'm trying to remember, um, oh, Ten Bears, sorry, excuse me, Ten Bears. And they have this, this conversation and they realize they have a common enemy, right? And that they are more alike, and that they have a little bit of a a truce, and in fact, like cut their hands and, and exchange blood. Um, the Ten Bears is played by uh, the guy who was the chief in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest yeah. from the year before. Um, there just seemed to be a, like layers of respect, and so it wasn't a simple cowboy and Indian narrative like we had had time and time again again i was watching this with modern eyes so it's probably not the case but i i felt like it was a almost an apology uh for the fact that we were dealing with this confederate (laughs) sympathizing with the confederate soldiers here um i think that it would have been helpful i guess in the book this is more clear Clint Eastwood's character is not involved in either way. He's in the South. Be- he's with the South because he lives in the South. And that's the way yes. a lot of people were. Yeah. Like, I live here, so I guess I'm with the South, right? Like, they they, they don't have a newspaper to read or an internet feed to follow. They just know there's a war going on, and the South is one side. <laughs> North is the other. And he's just a farmer who's living there. Uh, these guys, uh, it's towards the end of the Civil War, and they're, like, ransacking places as spoils of war. But he doesn't have a particular position in any of this. But that's never made clear. We don't get to know him before his family is killed. The first thing we see in the movie is his family is killed and he hates these guys. And he's motivated to to get them. And it doesn't necessarily matter. I get that atrocities happen on both sides. And, you know, saying that one team is good or one team is bad, whatever. The motivations, it's all gray when you get to the blood and thunder of war, I guess. But it did feel strange that, that... that we were taking this perspective on it and it felt to me almost like an apology how respectful and cool he becomes blood brothers with an indian right and if you were willing to go to war to stop people with black skin from being considered you know nothing other than a slave that would be incongruous so it would have been helpful to know josie a little bit before this all happened but it's a typical western and it was already two and a half hours long and it just wants to function as your sort of standard like I say, revenge picture. It's just letting everything breathe and it's being really sort of grand about the presentation. And that all works. I, I keep on feeling like I'm sounding more negative than I mean to. I just think it's it, it wants to be an unforgiven and it's not quite an unforgiven. No, it's <laughs> not. No, no I, I would never say that. Um, but I, simply his reason for going after these soldiers is revenge for killing his only child and his wife. Yeah. I mean, that's, and then it becomes a bigger deal when he becomes a fugitive from the law and he keeps collecting all these people. There's a very obvious theme of loneliness and learning that you actually need a community and the big no. gunfight typically, uh, Eastwood would take on everybody by himself, takes on a different, um, a, a different angle because of all of these people he's encountered who end up traveling with him. There's, you know, there's a mangy dog and then there's this old man. And then, uh, um, in his quest to avenge his family. Abused. Yeah. In his quest to avenge his family, he collects a new family almost unknowingly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. 
I got it. I got it. <laughs> yeah, it's heavy-handed, but it, on the whole, it, it, it works. But you're right, there's something in there where I'm not necessarily as excited about this one as, as I should be, but I still like it a lot. I would never dissuade somebody from seeing it. Uh, fun cameo, Richard Farnsworth uh, shows Always up. Always good to see. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, he's, he's barely in it, and uh, he's he's part of their... Uh, this, and it's somewhat entitled rich family, like this this grandmother and uh, um, and her husband, and, and they're trapped, but they get ransacked by these scavengers, and he's one of one of them uh, that Eastwood deals with when he when he comes across these people uh, later on, who leads to uh, uh, some of the relationships there. Uh, what uh, did you think of? I remember her name, Sandra Locke, who I think this was the first film that they that uh, she did with Eastwood. They did end up having a relationship here, and so she plays this woman that's described as a little bit dim at some point. But I would uh, say she's the least essential ingredient of the movie yeah. in a lot of ways. I guess it's nice to see a different face and get a female perspective here and there, but there was a lot of fat on this movie already, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the things is we keep saying, it's it's 136 minutes. I guess that's not, like, crazy long. But you feel the length of this one more. Like, uh... The yeah, Wild yeah. Bunch is two and a half hours, and it's a it's a it's a it's a cool breeze. It just comes right through, as far as I'm concerned. I uh, didn't feel that at all. It's two and a half hours, like yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, this one you feel it, but I mean, it's a deliberate. It's deliberate with its pace. Uh, it's not accidentally dragging its feet. Yeah. Um, again, I I, I I like it. I don't love it. Um, this is one of those ones where I wouldn't necessarily recommend it to just anyone, but if you're a fan of the form. Absolutely. Yeah, if you're a fan of Clint Eastwood and and westerns, in some ways it feels like what the most traditional of the ones that we are talking about, though. Yeah. You know, not that it's bland. It's just you're right. There are some sequences which drag a little bit. Maybe it was again the direct directed by Eastwood, and he inherited the project too. Yeah. From Phil Kaufman, who wrote the screenplay and got fired. Apparently, uh, it led to a unique rule of the, the Directors Guild of America because then Eastwood took credit for the film and they they put a clause in there so that no star of a movie could end up taking over the direction of it and receiving credit. So I, I know for a fact that like Kevin Costner took over um, some of Kevin Reynolds' films yeah. and Famously, Edward Norton kind of took over American History X, but they, but they don't were get credit. They don't get the credit in the end as being the directors of those those films. And That's interesting because I think role. Philip Kaufman is a very interesting filmmaker. I wonder what yeah. the differences would have been, and I wonder why he was fired. I love his Body Snatchers, and I think uh, The Right Stuff was one of the most underrated movies of the eighties. Yes. So, yeah, it's a mystery to me. Must, somebody must have been getting along with somebody else on set. It could have been Eastwood and and Kaufman weren't getting along, and and they're like, okay, this is a western starring Clint Eastwood. We can't sell any westerns at this time, so uh, the star is not replaceable, but the director is. This is already not a popular project, so don't make too much noise, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Good enough. Good enough.
struggled with this list more than I thought I would. Well, it's a tough bunch of movies. Like, uh, I mean, I, I even the two that I'm not as hot on in the in the list, I, I don't have a like. I'm not mad at any of these movies. I didn't feel like my time was wasted. I wasn't like, why did I put myself, let alone anyone else, through this movie? So that's nice. That's nice to have. I've been doing a few episodes lately where there's been some tough watches. (laughs) So uh, this was a nice palate cleanser. Uh, Thanks for being here, Jason. I would love to know, what was your least favorite of these six westerns and why? Yeah, I feel like maybe I was in the not in the right space to see it for some reason, but Young Guns 2 just did not completely do it for me. Uh, I, I Again, I feel like I do this every show. I plan to revisit it and see if I have a different opinion in a little bit, but for today, uh, that's the bottom. That's too bad, because you actually ordered a, a fresh hot copy of that to watch. You could have just well, borrowed mine, dude. <laughs> yeah, but I'm going to use it on my podcast someday, you there know, you and... Those who have listened to this might be able to predict then how that show is going to go. But or maybe you'll watch it again and it'll be the most amazing Western you've ever seen. And I'll be like, what What was I on uh, that week when I was... Because I watched all these fairly close to uh, each other, as yeah. well as Young Guns. So it was kind of seven in a few days here. But I'm starting to do with your show a little bit so that I'm not having stretches of time between here. So um, Number five for me is Wild Bill. I really want to like it, but it's not... There, I think Walter Hill um, was big on style, but the, the script certainly needed a lot more work. Um, number four feels this is one where I feel like it's a bit low, um, but in a valley of violence, ended up fourth for me. There was a performance I wasn't as thrilled with, and I, I don't know. I it's it's like goes back to your question about like the. The older westerns versus the new ones, uh, and how I feel about them. Like, I mean, I love some some modern westerns, and we've talked about True Grit. The Coen Brothers um, directed True Grit, which is a masterpiece, and I love Django Unchained and movies like that. This one, there's a lot more to like than dislike. But I again, I was struggling with the top four, as I said from the start. Number three, The Outlaw of Josie Wales. Um, I still really like I like the acting I like the scope of it uh, it does appeal to probably more the traditional type of Clint Eastwood western the stakes are high enough there's a message in it um, the climax is, isn't as some things might be predictable but it isn't like the, the man in the town shooting all the bad guys down and then making people safe and then wandering out of the town like he in fact ends up spoilers for the end but he stays in the town where all of this happens yeah. and actually find, finds a place at the end of this. Number two, one and two are so, so close. And I, I, I know what you're going to do with this, but I had to go with the Wild Bunch this time. I thought Wild Bunch was going to be a hands-down number one, but I had such a great time with the Fiscal Dollars. And I've just watched it over and over again. And there, there's some inexplicable charm to that film that I can't, it passed. It's solid for me. Um, versus the Wild Bunch, I think I had this memory of it being like this bloodbath, which it is, no doubt, but somehow <laughs> the violence seemed safer than the first time I saw it because maybe I was just completely unprepared for what the, the Wild Bunch would be. I'm, this time I was, I've been of it. I'm 
and it's it's a bit calmer than that. Sorry, you, you know, glitched um, out there just for a second. Could you repeat that, brother? Yeah, just uh, I think I was my member was like a Tarantino level bloodbath. Right. And there's still plenty of violence there, but there's also huge sections of time where that's not that's not happening, and it's kind of a build up to it. And I, I think you know, I, I it's not that I didn't enjoy it this time, and and the last twenty minutes are unbelievable. Just yeah. <laughs> the last minutes was nearly the thing that made me switch it to to first, and I, I was really battling between those two. But on this day, at this particular time, at this stage of my life, the Wild Bunch is number two. And a fistful of dollars is number one, and I, I love them both. It was just really, really tight, really close for me. But look, that's a good list. I respect that list. It's a different list. Uh, it's a different list than my list. Uh, um, look, uh, um, we're not going to fight over this. It's really close. Um, if you take the bottom two, the middle two, and the top two, they're the same <laughs> for us, right? Uh, yeah. At the bottom. Young Guns 2, yes, agreed. Agreed. I admit that I have some personal nostalgia attached to this, especially the first Young Guns, but as just sort of like over, sort of holdover, Young Guns 2 is attached to it as well. It's not as fun as Young Guns to me. Um, it does have its problems, but if you want to see, you know, the Brat Pack 90s Western, this is it. And it, it's better than that description would sound, while not being particularly great. And again, old Emilio. Ugh. I just really <laughs> old Emilio is not working for me. Why, why don't we get Martin Sheen? Because they look alike. <laughs> have Martin Sheen play that role? I guess he wasn't that old at that point yeah. too. That would, but would have made still, it much well, I would have gone. I would have thrown away that whole aspect of the script personally. Yeah. Um, with no joy, I put Walter Hill's Wild Bill in fifth position. I like Walter Hill, even though he's made shitty movies, and I really like Jeff Bridges, but this is not his finest hour. It has moments where you can see the good movie that it could have been, but it's just not quite there. Um, those are the two ones that I come closest to you know, not recommending, or only recommending if you're an enthusiast of the uh -huh. Western genre. Okay, For the rest of the movies I'm talking about, they're, they're recommendations. Yeah. I feel like the outlaw Josie Whale is supposed to be higher on the list, <laughs> but I put it in fourth place. I think it's just really good instead of amazing or like one of the greatest westerns ever made. I don't think that's an insult to say that's a really good western, you know? Like, it does the job, absolutely, and it's really well executed. There's nothing rough around the edges about it at all as far as its execution, and it really sort of, I think, solidified Clint Eastwood, the director. So there's lots of reasons to like the outlaw Josie Wales. I just happen to enjoy In a Valley of Violence more. I have this fanboy thing with Ty West, and I, I wasn't sure how this was going to go. I knew that Ty West could make some badass horror movies, like of that I knew, but I wasn't sure how the Western thing was going to play out. And it really worked for me. Again, uh, it's the other thing personal about it. I love the retribution to bullies, which you get a lot of of this. Yes. And I am such a dog person that, like, it would be hard for me to watch that dog scene again. Like, I, that's one of those scenes that I would be tempted to skip because it's just too fucking it's traumatizing. It's too traumatizing. Yeah. So, uh, even more so than Josie Wales avenging the death of his wife and child. <laughs> I was like, 
You have to make this right. You have to make this right, Mr. Hawk. Ethan, you have to kill these sons of bitches. And uh, it's kind of unfortunate because Travolta had nothing to do with the dog. That was not his move. Um, And the top two, you're right, are are brutal, brutal decision to make. I put a fistful of dollars in second place, probably purely for the aesthetic. You have the dubbing and you have the Italian landscapes against uh, the American landscapes where if you see enough Westerns, you can tell the very notable difference between the two. And, you know, in some ways it helps to that weird otherworldly pseudo post-apocalyptic vibe that I kind of got in this viewing from it. Um, But it was just the reason that I gave myself to put it in second place. Uh, The Wild Bunch is a really energizing experience for me. Uh, Again, a lot of it has to do with the last 20 minutes, but I think you need the two hours leading up to it to sort of... Uh, get to know the characters and settle into their world. And it is such a brutal world we're introduced to. The first thing we see in the movie is a bunch of children for entertainment throwing a scorpion onto a pile of red ants and watching it get squ- swarmed. And it's a really good, you know, way to situate you in this blood and thunder world that we're going to see. Um, and again, 69, this must have just blew the roof off of the theaters. Yeah. Like, it's so epic. Uh, Sam fucking Peck and Paw. Again, choosing between the Wild Bunch and a fistful of dollars. I mean, I, I apologize for putting us in that position. So I'm not going to like say, how dare you? How dare you put a fistful of dollars in number one? But for me, I had to put the Wild Bunch. Yeah. I just had to do it. Yeah. I don't I'm think glad you mentioned that. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned the scene with the kids at the beginning. Yeah. Because what we're seeing is the climax of the movie there. Kind of, yeah. Many like that was a really clever symbol that he threw in there. Yeah, very talented, very talented man. So, and so endeth another Rankin review. Uh, please, everybody, lend your ears to the shelf-shedding movie show hosted by the venerable Mister Jason Dubray and R and R. We'll drop every other Wednesday. Thank you, brother. Thank you. How does one decide between a fistful of dollars and the wild bunch? I mean, what an unreasonable thing for me to ask Jason and I to do. That's that's not fair. That's not nice. It's unkind. So we didn't match. We didn't match, but it was it was close enough, really. Close enough for government work. If you have your list, if you want to explain what you think the, the rank should be, you could do that by writing me at rankinreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. You can check out my website at rankinreview.ca and you can look forward to more episodes of Rankin Review every other Wednesday. Thank you so much for listening to my show. I really appreciate your ears. Tell a friend, be a friend, and keep listening.